back in time to the 1950s into a marketing room and say, hey, I have an idea. Let's create a brand called Barrel and just add another L. You know, they would have been laughed out of the room. <laughs> never would have worked. They're like, there's no grandpa connected to this story. We don't have anything about the original yeast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it'd go, it would go on and on and on. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. All right, let's say you want to start a new bourbon brand, but you don't have generations of family heritage or an existing legacy to lean on. So how do you get consumers to try something new? Well, you might just end up reverting back to something that's tried and true, like putting horses or barns on the label. Branding today seems to require more storytelling than ever than focusing just on the whiskey. And one modern bourbon brand is trying to break that mold, and that's Frank August. I've invited their CEO and co-founder on, Jonathan Crocker, to talk about navigating this challenge and how they're reinventing branding in a crowded bourbon market without relying on a legacy. They're focused on creating an authentic, modern bourbon brand that resonates with consumers. It's an interesting case study on building a bourbon brand from scratch in today's industry. Well, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with the Buff the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Joe Smoth on Twitter. His name is Joe Smoth Duke fan at Twitter, actually. Will this bourbon boom ever end? Will supply ever catch up with the demand? Thanks. Good question, Joe. One that we get asked a lot here on Bourbon Pursuit. And just let me say, like, I'm curious. Are there other categories with fans that people ask this question? Like in wine, when it was skyrocketing in the early to mid-2000s, I don't remember people saying like, ooh, when's this going to end? I remember people being excited that it was doing well. In football, as we see see it grow, I don't really see too many people saying, good God, I wish football would stop being popular and it'd go back to... The only people that can see a game are the real fans. You know, I I don't see a lot of that. I mean, you see a little bit of it, but there's something unique about bourbon fans. The you know, you're in it for five minutes and you're asking, "Great, when's it gonna fail so I can get the bottles that used to be available 30 years ago?" It just doesn't work that way. Like, and I'm only I'm not answering your question just yet, but I'm only prefacing it this way because I want to be very clear, y'all. When the bourbon boom ends. Pappy 23 is not going to be on the shelf. Buffalo Trace Antique Collection is not going to be on the shelf. You're not going to start seeing, you know, the smoke wagon uncut for 30 bucks. That's just, that's not going to happen. Those brands, if, you know, with a lot of those products, they're they're either going to, uh, you know, put them in, in plays that are a little bit more profitable for them for the volume game, or they're going to continue it in the, on the luxury side that they have. But there's going to be a lot of brands that go out of business. A lot of people will get lose their jobs all the way from uh, the suppliers, the distillers, to the distributors and the retailers that have built their companies around bourbon's popularity. Not to mention the uh, importers overseas who are taking a gamble on American whiskey in places like Poland and Argentina that really haven't had much of an opportunity in bourbon. So if, if you're out there wishing for the bourbon boom to end, I got news for you. If it does end, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to get Weller 12-year-old again for like, you know, 30 bucks. There's a good of a chance that Weller will just have one line as there is you having access to 12-year-old again. But that being said, I tend to look at the bourbon boom from a historical perspective. Spirits categories tend to have 30-year reigns. That's when the, the main drinking population is kind of ages out of like consuming alcohol. I mean, there's right now the millennials, Gen X and baby boomers are all drinking bourbon and the Gen Z as they come into the drinking age. They're not chugging, you know, Natty Light like I did when I turned 21. They're drinking high-end bourbons and they're coming to my private tastings and my blind bourbon events across the country. So I've seen it firsthand how they operate. That being said... You know, we're probably around year 15. I tracked 
about 2008. 2008 is when we started to see the bourbon boom begin. And some people would say 2012, but I think it's 2008 because that's when we started seeing something like Jim Beam White Label have double-digit sales increases. So I'd say we're on second base of that 30-year run. We probably have another 15 years until it you know evens out. That's the category as its own. But the one sign that we should all be looking for as like there could be a thinning of the herd of brands themselves. I mean, there are way too many brands out there doing 17 expressions off of one recipe. So I think there could be a thinning of that in the next five years. But then again, I've been wrong many times about this. I mean, it could all flop tomorrow and uh, you may be able to get your precious Pappy 23-year-old again for like, you know, 20 bucks, which that never actually happened. But, you know, we can all dream about it. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Joe, hit me up on Twitter. I'm sorry, x.com. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick, and send me your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. Always find what you love at Total Wine and More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. And with every bottle comes the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia North Carolina. Drink responsibly and be 21. Give 270's 2020 Unicorn Bourbon Raffle is back. Your $20 ticket gives you chances at our exclusive assortment of 20 Michter's products. 20-year, 10-year, toasted barrel finish, and more. And all names go back into the pot for a chance at our grand prize, a Michter's 25-year. Tickets are available until 7 p.m. April 3rd, with a drawing at 8 p.m. on our Facebook and YouTube channels. Visit give270.org to grab your tickets. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Have you tried to identify specific notes in bourbon when nosing and tasting, but just come up empty? Well, you can train your nose to find all those nuances with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. So you can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma made from chemicals. Head over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter the code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky. And you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. From Jim Beam to Maker's Mark, their brand and label are the only things more iconic than a bourbon's taste. And that's why we've partnered with Sticker Mountain, a company focused on helping you make a statement with your labels and stickers. Embracing cutting-edge embellishment technology allows them to add foil, raise texture, and more to make your product stand out, all at competitive prices with market-leading turnaround and customer service that treats you like a business partner. And that's why right now you can get 10% off your order with coupon code STICKYBOURBON at StickerMountain.com. See the difference they can make for you and your business at StickerMountain.com using coupon code STICKYBOURBON. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, Fred, and Ryan here all today to talk about a fun topic, and only because it might be topical to Ryan and I, but Fred's also seen the trajectory and growth of many brands over the years, whether they're from heritage distillers, from NDPs and alike. And really the topic of today is going to be focused on how do you tell a story and how do you build a brand when you don't have that legacy or that heritage to really kind of rely on and kind of be your crux. Not everybody can have an Elijah Craig or an Evan Williams or anything like that. Instead, you've got to figure out how do you build something around a, a new concept or a new idea. And I think that's we've we've seen this over the years. It's it's always been well, and it's it's played out. If you've seen somebody like 
Trey Zoller from Jefferson's, you know, he relied on somebody that was a, an iconic character. And how do you get away from something like that, but instead you kind of build something that's either about you or whether it's something that's just a, maybe about a place or something like that too. I'll kind of hand it over to you guys to give some initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going through this now, but you see it, you know, you saw it with Bullet and, you know, you said Jefferson's and then, you know, you kind of had like Willet and all that had, they had some kind of a legacy in history, but they were brought their brand back, but didn't have a distillery. You have, how do you, I guess, separate from, you know, the big six who have this great legacy and heritage? You say Elijah Craig. I mean, that's, I guess you could do what they did and just make up a bullshit story. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but you just need 200 years for time to pass that nobody check, fact checks you on it. Yeah. Bourbon's this interesting thing that like, you know, we've, we've talked about how like, People think if you're handcrafting it and making it and you're a producer of it, it gives you like more legitimacy, you know, than like other in other industries where that doesn't necessarily matter. It's more about, you know, the branding and the the connection that people have to you. But there's some weird dynamic because the big six have done such a fantastic job of, you know, making it about we make our whiskey, even though we source the other people, you know, for throughout the years. But, you know, we made our whiskey and we're better than those source companies out there and whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's a interesting dynamic trying to get into consumers' minds and see what works with them, you know, on building that brand. When it comes to this, you're basically, you're looking at what, what consumers want, what consumers will buy. When I was researching my book, Bourbon, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey, I found, I think, close to 20 different cases for who invented bourbon or created bourbon, and even more cases for those who claim to have the original sour mash recipe. And it's like it, on and on and on. It's like this industry has always been rewarded by saying that they are the first or having some kind of really jazzy, classy story to it. In walk like a new set of consumers in the early 2000s to where we are today, and you start seeing people kind of get away from really wanting to be connected to the story. You know, when Trey Zoller was coming out with Jefferson's, the story was probably more important than the actual whiskey in the 1990s. And that's, and that's kind of how a lot of people were brought up in an American whiskey. And so now we're seeing that shift where you have all of these brands that are that are now coming out that have no meaning whatsoever. I mean, if you were to take one a good example, if you were to take a very popular brand in barrel back in time to the 1950s into a marketing room and say, hey, I have an idea. Let's create a brand called barrel and just add another L. You know, they would have been laughed out of the room. That <laughs> never would have worked. They're like, there's no grandpa connected to this story. We don't have anything about the original yeast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it'd go, it would go on and on and on. But today it, it works because we have Google, we have Yahoo, we have Starbucks. We have all of these like iconic contemporary brands that mean absolutely nothing. And so I think whiskey has kind of fallen a little bit into, into that path. Where today you don't need a story. You could just kind of come up out of out of nowhere. But if you still want to rely on the heritage story, that works too. So it's an interesting time. And I don't think there's a wrong way to to launch a brand. And I don't think one style is at a disadvantage in the other. And I think today it always comes down to the whiskey, Kenny. We'll dive into that a lot more here in a little bit, too. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So our guest today is Jonathan Crocker. He is the CEO and co-founder of Frank August. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So it's been one of those things that you've kind of really came on the scene in the past few years recently. Your bottles are, as Fred kind of alluded to, it's very contemporary. It's very modern. You have this different spin on things. And we'll talk more about the brand and how we build that authenticity around something that just doesn't have to worry about, oh, you got to see our still. You've got to know that, you know, my grandpa burned down a barn one time and that's how we came up with our <laughs> barrels. But instead, let's let's kind of focus on you for a second. Kind of talk about your journey into this world and sort of how you got into the whiskey scene as well. Yeah. You know, for us, COVID was really the catalyst for us to 
kind of explore this wishful idea, this fanciful thought that me and my two business partners have had for the last five or six years of starting our own bourbon brand. And, you know, I think we're going to look back at that time during COVID and see so much kind of creation come out of that, that time period. And for us, it really affords us that opportunity to really kind of dive deeper into, is there a real opportunity here? And, you know, fortunately for us, one of my good friends for the last 10 years now is Drew Colesvain. I'm sure the majority of your listeners know, but master distiller of Willet, whose family who owns Willet. So if you're going to have a friend to ask questions about bourbon, about, you know, Drew would obviously be at the top of that list. So I reached out to him, told him what we were thinking and had a ton of questions for him, still have a ton of questions for him. But the two main questions that I had were, one, if you didn't have Willet and you were starting a brand today, who would you want to distill with? And two, we're going to need a good attorney. Do you have any recommendations for us? So <laughs> that's what I'm we've sure learned. You guys this can appreciate well. that. We're writing checks every week to somebody. Before then, though, I kind of want to roll back. So, how did you meet Drew, and how did you get into those ties, and kind of how did you get into the whiskey scene in general too? Because I, I know that's the start of the brand, but kind of just talk about your journey through it. I've always been a big bourbon fan, and by always, I would say that for the last twenty years. I'm 46, so it's you know it's been a minute since I've been able to drink, and I got introduced to bourbon and whiskey pretty early on. Probably my first drink was, uh, I don't know, maybe Bullet. I can't even remember what the first you know kind of real sip was, but the first one that made an impact on me was Blanton's for a lot of obvious of reasons: the packaging, the design, the whole kind of ceremony of it. So that was kind of my introduction, and from that point on kind of moving forward, that was just always kind of my preferred drink. And just like anything that you're passionate about or interested in, you start to explore it, you start to expose yourself more to it, become more educated. And that's just what I did over the course of these last 20 years. In the middle of that, through a mutual friend in Nashville, I was a partner in this Italian leather goods company that was based out of Nashville called Peter Nappi. And we started to do kind of series of like live music events in the studio. And I wanted to do a whiskey pairing for one of the upcoming events. And I was talking to a friend about it. And he said, oh, you need to beat my friend Drew. And he told me about Drew. So I reached out to Drew. And that really is kind of it. You know, we we got connected through that. And, you know, if you've had the opportunity to spend time with Drew, you just know how incredibly generous he is, generous of his time, his ideas, his thoughts, his whiskey. And we just kind of formed a relationship, you know, over the last 10 years. My wife's family lives in Nashville. So we spend a tremendous amount of time there. A lot of our closest family and friends live there. You know, we expect that Nashville will be home in the next 12 to 24 months at some point. So, you know, just over that time, just developed a relationship. Anytime he was here in LA, you know, we'd spend time together as well. So that's how we got to know each other. And then when you got to know him and start getting into whiskey, do you fall in the same habit that we all do? And you started just buying bottles on bottles on bottles. And now it starts looking like, Fred shelf behind them. Yeah, maybe not that extensive. But, you know, as I mentioned with Drew's generosity, I remember after meeting him for the first time, he had sent me a text and asked me if I was going to be in town, at least in town, meaning being back here in LA. And I said yes. And about a week later, a big package shows up. And I think, I can't remember the number. There had to be at least like eight family estate wax top you know, bottles that range from 14 to 25 years, you know, and even at that time, 10 years ago, I knew how valuable that was and how unique and special that was. And, you know, I immediately called them and I was like, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) And that's just the way that he's always been over the last 10 years. So, you know, getting shipments of incredible juice from him over that time period, it really has kind of shaped and influenced my palate in a pretty significant way, just because with that much will it kind of stored in your house, I really didn't drink that much else for a long time. So kind of getting used to that really kind of further developed my palate, the flavor profile that I kind of would naturally, you know, go towards and, you know, kind of provided us the opportunity to, to have conversations about bourbon and whiskey a little bit more in depth than just the, you know, average drinker. Well, that's not even fair. You're basically eating filet mignon every night with 14 to 25 year old whiskey. Totally. I mean, it just, you know, it definitely altered my, I guess, gauge of quality, 
and what I wanted or what, you know, just as a consumer, when I was going to have a glass of bourbon, what should it taste like? So yeah, it, it definitely influenced that. I would say so. All right. So kind of talk a little more about when, you know, COVID hit, you said that you, you kind of saw this opportunity and you said, I, I think we can build a brand, you and a, a few friends trying to do this. Was it a necessity because of another business that wasn't doing well because of COVID or is it just an itch that you wanted to scratch? Kind of talk about what more of the, the impetus was it that wanted to make you kind of dive in? Yeah, it was an idea that we would, you know, kind of toy around with, you know, for at that time, you know, last five or six years. And when COVID hit, it really just kind of afforded us the time to pursue it. You know, all of us had full-time jobs, so we didn't really have the opportunity to dive in in the manner that we knew would be required. And once everybody was kind of working from home and just the whole kind of working environment evolved and changed, it just provided us the opportunity to, to finally explore that. So that was definitely the catalyst. And, you know, reaching out to Drew and his kind of initial direction of those two main things in terms of what distillery to work with and pointing us in the direction of our attorney really kind of had a ripple effect on where we are now. And as you guys know, our, our attorneys, Chad McCoy, he just retired from the legislature, but he was the majority whip in the Kentucky state legislature and drafting a lot of the significant legislation for the last six years in and around bourbon. So, you know, even though the bourbon industry has evolved significantly over the last five plus years, it's still very much a good old boys club and, you know, doesn't take a whole lot of imagination of, you know, picturing me rolling into Bardstown on my own and just saying, I'm looking to start a whiskey brand. Or I'm looking to lay down some barrels. You know, not too many doors are probably going to open for me. But if Drew's making an introduction or Chad's making an introduction, it really helped get us in the door. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's still up to us to convince these partners that we were serious in what we wanted to build. But it definitely gave us a leg up in terms of access to the quality of partners that we have today. So that was definitely the genesis, the, the building blocks for the brand. Because if we couldn't secure the quality of partners that we have, I don't think we would be here today. Not because we couldn't have done it through other channels, but we knew and still know how incredibly competitive the industry is. And at the end of the day, and we'll start to get into this, but you know, no matter how compelling or beautiful the story of your brand might be or your packaging might be, it's still about what's in that bottle that's still of paramount importance. We understand that. We still acutely understand that to this day. And I just don't think we probably would have pursued it in the manner that we did if we didn't have the quality of partners that we have. People talk about COVID babies. There's tons of businesses started in COVID too. You know, with all that free time, the hell, that's where I learned to become not a master blender, but a blender. Yellow belt. Yeah. yeah, yellow belt blender. I guess talk through those initial conversations or like you're having like, okay, I'm looking at the current landscape of whiskey and bourbon. Where do I fit in or where do I want to fit in? How did you think through that as a, you were successful in building some successful brands in other industries? How did you see yourself fit in this industry? I think typical business 101, right, is if you're starting a new brand, you have to identify a problem or need that's not being met in the marketplace and then create a solution for it. And in the case of bourbon or whiskey, there's obviously no problem need or shortage of new bourbon brands, right? So there, that wasn't the problem. But the opportunity that we recognized was, despite the category being as incredibly competitive and cluttered as it is, there was predominantly one story, one strict narrative that was told kind of over and over again. And unless you subscribe to that, you weren't considered real, you weren't authentic, and you, you weren't bourbon. And as we all know, that, that predominant story has always been that family legacy story, that origin story some grandpappy's family recipe passed on from generation to generation, a distillery that's been revitalized after 100 years, a yeast strain that's been discovered. This is the name of the mule that pulled these barrels from these rickhouses all these years ago. And, you know, <laughs> and we're, we we're not... have it's, it's dried dung right here to be able to show you about it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not, we're truly not saying anything disparaging against those stories. Some of our favorite brands represent and embody those stories, but they've become so ubiquitous that they've just kind of homogenized the category as a whole right? Do a simple kind of test. Walk in, next time you walk into your favorite liquor retailer, walk into the bourbon aisle, close your eyes, randomly reach out, grab two bottles and pull them back. And chances are that's what the story is. So we recognize that. And we felt that, you know, how could we compete 
with trying to tell the same story. First of all, we couldn't. None of us had a grandpappy or any kind of legacy origin story that we could tap into. So we kind of adopted this philosophy, this kind of paraphrasing, but it's this Marcus Aurelius quote that like, what's in the way becomes the way. And we just kind of leaned into that. And for us, you know, the solution was to kind of create a modern expression of what bourbon could be, what it could represent. And by that, we wanted the liquid itself to be the heritage in the story. So that's why it had to be Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey from one of the best distilleries that we could possibly, you know, work with. But beyond that, we wanted every other touch point, every other experience of the brand to look, behave, operate, feel different than what you'd come to expect from a bourbon brand. And, you know, hence the kind of minimal aesthetic and design that you see. Because I think, again, I'm speaking broadly and generally, but there's a, there's a kind of unspoken rule book of what bourbon should be and what it should look like and how it should operate. And part of that aesthetic of it is, you know, I think in general, again, whenever I'm speaking, I'm not speaking absolutely, but in general, the bourbon industry kind of leaned towards this more is more philosophy. And you can see it in, you know, the bottle designs. Everything is kind of bigger, bolder, script typography, lots of copy on it, throw an animal on for good measure, a chicken, a horse, an ego, a buffalo, put a rickass on, a bard, and you've got yourself a bourbon brand, right? And again, if that's something that appeals to you, there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of brands that kind of adopt to that aesthetic and that kind of point of view. And for us, we wanted to lean in the opposite direction. And we wanted to embrace a position that we didn't feel was really represented in bourbon and whiskey. And that idea is that less is more. And we were hoping and that we believe that the simplicity of what we wanted to build and how we wanted to say it would be what would speak so loudly about our brand. So when you just, you know, just referring to the actual design of the bottle, you know, it's a, obviously it's a custom design bottle, custom design closure, but it's incredibly minimal. Uh, we got really lucky and fortunate that when we were going through our whole cola application process, we fortunately had a representative that cared enough to respond. When I was submitting, I'd submitted the neck label initially. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I made a note to say that I'd be submitting the primary front label soon, but we were still working on it. And someone got back to us and said, you don't need to do that. And we're like, well, what do you mean you don't need that? I thought that was like TTB regulation. And it just so happened that at the end of 2020, the TTB updated regulations that removed the requirement that a brand's primary label be your front label. And that same time, that's when they updated like the ML requirements where you could also, you know, bottle at 700 versus 750. So that was like during that, that whole just kind of updates, you know, to the rules and regulations with the TTB. So we got really fortunate with the timing because everything that we had mocked up and designed was essentially what our bottle is now. Just the brand mark and precious metal gold at the bottom that says Frank August, the neck label. And then we put the primary label on the back and with a clear sticker that just kind of peels off effortlessly and leaves zero residue. So that was the kind of direction that we wanted to go from a design and aesthetic point of view. And I think Fred and I had this conversation early on and, you know, Fred just kind of said it in the beginning as well. You know, at the end of the day, what's most important without question is the juice. I kid you not, as you're talking here, I, I had one little note I wrote. What about the whiskey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right as you... Right as you Right I'm as cute. you were naturally going there, my my, <laughs> my brain was like, what about the whiskey? And I'm going to get to that in one second. But one thing I wanted to say with that is, I think there's nothing in life that we experience as consumers that's singular or one-dimensional, right? So if you go out to have a nice meal, what's the most important thing? The quality of the food, right? Of course, nobody's going to deny that. But the moment that you walk into that restaurant, the way that you're greeted, the way that you're seated, the overall environment, the music, all of that contributes to your experience of that meal. And for us, we look at that in the same thing as whiskey. Again, without question, the most important thing is the whiskey. But every other touch point and experience that you come up against with a brand as a consumer impacts the way that you think about that brand, you feel about that brand, and I would dare say even how you enjoy it. And that's something that we wanted to take in consideration. And again, we, we really don't feel that 
that identity or philosophy of less is more is really represented in bourbon. Maybe the only place that I see that is in kind of Japanese whiskeys. And there's a lot of, you know, inspiration and influence there. But beyond that, we really don't see that. And that's a space that we wanted to kind of satisfy and fill. But in regards to the whiskey, we had the unique opportunity to partner with a distillery that makes incredible bourbon. Obviously, as an NDP and not wanting to wait five years before we bottled, we had to also procure a source liquid. Through the relationships that we had, we were incredibly fortunate to get our source liquid from the same distillery that we were contract distilling with, which was a pretty unique rarity in this day and age. So we took a big position on that very early on. That was another thing that in conversations with distributors and other partners, to let them know how serious we were. We weren't kind of limping into this and saying, all right, we're going to do a small bottling of a few thousand bottles, see how it goes, and then kind of go from there. We knew we had to take a big position. So we've got inventory for roughly our first three years of projections that we had starting two years ago. And you guys know better than anybody else. You know how capital intensive that is. But we knew we we needed to kind of draw that line for us as a brand and kind of move forward in that way. The liquid itself, you know, I've shared with you guys before, some of you, that it's it's theoretically a bottled and bond product. But the reason why we couldn't market it that way is we had an NDA with our distiller that we couldn't disclose who they are. And I know for a lot of people, that's a little frustrating. You know, it wasn't a decision on our part. This was a decision that was mandated in order for us to work with them. But for a lot of your listeners who are, you know, true enthusiasts, it says who we're not, which in a lot of ways I think is just as important, right? By us having to sign an NDA, it means that we're not, you know, BBC, Green River, Castle and Key. It's Kentucky, so we're obviously not MGP or Dickel. You know, kind of go down the row of usual contract distilling partners. And it leaves a, a fairly shorter list of reputable Kentucky distillers. And then you throw on that filter of kind of Drew pointing us in that direction, Hopefully, it allays any kind of questions or concerns over the quality of juice that we have. What's your guys' bingo card look like right now? <laughs> I'm I just messing. One, I got one letter left. <laughs> there you go. G5, GG59. G59. I, mean, I was like, so, Kenny, look at my next question. Who's the distiller? Yep. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it's like, that's the obvious next question. He, he just goes, he just, he just naturally answers <laughs> everything here. So I kind of want to like just change things up a little bit and kind of put it back on topic too. You know, just kind of the thing that I'm also kind of curious about is just the name Frank August, sort of the generation of the genesis of, of how that came to be. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. When it's derby season, the city of Louisville comes alive, and happening on Thursday, April 11th, is the Republic Bank Kentucky Derby Festival's Bourbonville. This is the third straight year Bourbonville will take place at the Fraser History Museum. Enjoy signature drinks, 
bourbon-inspired cuisine, access to museum exhibits, and tons of other bourbon vendors such as Elijah Craig, Fourgate, Four Roses, Kentucky Peerless, Pursuit Spirits, Castle and Key, and so many more. General admission is only $75, and that includes all your food, drinks, and museum admission. Go ahead, buy tickets now at kdf.org for Bourbonville. If you think you've done everything in bourbon country, just wait a second. I'm excited to say that Pursuit Spirits is now open for visitors. If you're planning your next trip to Louisville, I'm telling you now, add a stop to our distillery because we're bringing you something incredibly new and unique. The first is something I call the whole shebang, because what else do you call a 90-minute experience that has absolutely everything? You'll get an in-depth history and tasting of the Pursuit United products, but you'll also get to take part in your very own single-barrel selection from Pursuit United Private Select Barrels. Ron and I have been on tons of barrel picks, and now we want to bring that experience to you. Instead of having a group decide on a barrel, you select your own, but that's not even the half of it. Now, you'll grab a whiskey thief and fill it straight from the barrel, then head to the bottling line to cork it and label it yourself. And if that's not enough, we also have the Pursuit United Breakdown Experience, where you get to taste all the components at cask strength and then taste the blend to see how it all comes together. Plus, we're going to throw in the oak collection so you can see what toasting does. Book your visit now at PursuitSpirits.com and hit the Visit Us button. I'm really looking forward to seeing you here at our distillery in Louisville. The thing that I'm also kind of curious about is just the name Frank August, sort of the generation of the genesis of, of how that came to be, because we'll talk about sort of the top of the show and why you chose that name too. But go ahead. I kind of want to hear the background behind it. Yeah, the name represents the story that we want to tell in Bourbon. So Frank is inspired by one of my business partners, late father, Frank Detella, And August is the middle name of my other business partner's son, Nils. So Frank representing our past, understanding our heritage, where we've come from, where we've been, and August representing all of our future ideals, aspirations, and just the idea of looking forward. Because again, traditionally, the story of bourbon is told by its past. It's told by looking back. And we wanted to pay our respects to that, but at the same time, look forward. So that's Frank August. Good. And so I guess the the question that I sort of had, and, and why I'll, I'll give a, a soft challenge to it as well, is that even with the, the topic of today's conversation, we think about the Elijah Craigs, we think about the uh, Evan Williams, and when I heard about the Frank August, I looked at it and I was like, what is this? Just like an Ezra Brooks where we're going to make up some fictional person and, you know, create some some amazing past out of it? Because that was my initial thought of it. So I guess kind of talk about how you you take that stigma, but you change it into how you're trying to talk about building this story as well. For us, at the end of the day, if we all agree of what's most important is the quality of that juice, what's inside that bottle, that's what we really wanted to focus on. And again, we the term authenticity gets used so much that it loses its significance and meaning. And I think the reason why we see so many brands kind of adopt that family legacy origin story is because it's tied to something that existed in the past. And because of that, there seems to be this implied or inherent authenticity, right? Okay, there was this person named this, or there was this distillery that existed all these years ago. And for us, we didn't feel that authenticity had to be exclusively owned by that. And for us, we wanted to tell a story that was just as authentic, just as relevant, but that didn't have to subscribe to that. So for us, the tagline, if you will, of the brand is America's spirit, be frank. And it's this kind of double entendre. So America's spirit, you know, referring to Frank August in liquid form, be frank. But almost just as importantly, the ethos of what it means to be frank, being open, honest, undisguised, sincere, be frank. And that's the conversation that we wanted to start to share. And one thing that kind of stood out to me initially that I was always surprised by is, you know, by law, all bourbon has to be made in America. And I was always surprised why people didn't talk about that identity as much. By people, I mean brands. And then I realized, well, if it's a required characteristic of every single brand, what makes it unique or special to any one brand? But then I thought it's probably because 
if we were to look at that kind of identity of what American is, it'd probably be very similar, very consistent. So we kind of challenged ourselves to look at American through a different lens. And, you know, there's such strong associations and stereotypes that come to mind when we hear the word American. Things like baseball, apple pie, Elvis Presley, Ford, Chevy, Coca-Cola, Levi's, Wrangler, you know, all amazing American institutions, but fairly limiting for as rich and as diverse and as unique of a story that we think American represents. So we thought, well, what if we look one degree to the left and challenge ourselves to look at American through a different lens and then do the same thing with our consumers? And we started to look at things like music and we heard the likes of Dylan, Cash, Fitzgerald, Miles Davis, Billie Holiday. Uh, We looked at art and saw people like Warhol, Basquiat, Pollock, O'Keefe, Coons, Herring, Judd. Looked at architecture, Frank Lloyd Wright, John Lautner, Richard Meyer. I'm a big design guy, so I naturally looked at Rain Charles Eames, Florence Knoll, Paul McCobb, George Nelson. You can't help but think of English literature and some of those giants, Hemingway, Baldwin, Twain, Harper Lee, Kerouac. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? But the amazing thing, guys, is every single one of those names, every single one of those legends, those icons, the work they did, the art they created, every single one of them is American. And we thought, holy shit, like, how amazing is that? Like, how beautiful is that? That is an identity of American that we'd want to build a brand around. That's a conversation that we'd want to have around our brand that we think everybody can get behind. You know, we, we unfortunately live in such divisive times that even that word American can be polarizing when it shouldn't be. So kind of removing all politics and the likes from the conversation, we wanted to reconsider what it means to be American. And as a result, reconsider the identity of America's spirit. Because that identity has always been almost exclusively tied to that family legacy. So that's what America's spirit looks like. That's how it operates. That's how it behaves. That's how it should look. And we thought, well, why does it only have to be that? There's this whole other identity of what it means to be American that we feel that we could explore. So for anybody that does follow anything that we do on social media, every single piece of content that we've created or will ever create ties back to something American, every single piece of content. And, you know, the intention was we weren't trying to beat people over the head with this, but it was this kind of subtle storytelling of what it means to be frank to us, what this brand represent. And it's a celebration of America's spirit in every kind of form, looking at it through a different lens. In the same way that we're asking people, hey, does bourbon have to just fit in this really refined and confined box that we've created for it, or can it be more? So it's actually a huge part of the storytelling of Frank August for us. So Jonathan, you know, obviously you spoke very vividly, candidly about Frank August, but let's let's look at this from a building a brand perspective, because you all put so much thought into every detail, when does it become overthinking it versus a good strategy? I don't know. That's a good question. I think for us, it's about being intentional, but not being contrived in any way. And again, despite the word being overused, being authentic and true to ourselves and to the brand, you know? So how can we how can we introduce a reconsideration of what bourbon looks like or what the identity of American looks like in a way that's compelling and interesting? So I don't think that we've waded into those waters. I think we're, you know, we're obviously just starting as a brand. And I think I've enjoyed seeing some of the conversations, you know, around Frank August. And I started my professional career on the ad agency side and an old creative director probably over 25 years ago, said something that stuck with me to this day. And I've used it pretty much in every professional setting environment that I've ever been in. And he, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he essentially said, every brand has a story to tell. But does that story create a conversation? Does it create a dialogue? And if it doesn't, is it a story worth telling? And that's kind of what you know, I've used for all the different brands that I've worked with over my course of my career. And it's something that we definitely continue to think about with Frank August. So when we share something about the brand, 
we're trying to do so in a way that further creates a conversation and dialogue around the story that we want to tell. Back to the kind of like, all right, so taking Frank August out of it, right? So we're talking about like, I just met with somebody two weeks ago who has a horse farm. They leased a storage facility and they're bottling whiskey out of it. And they're selling out in every single Kentucky store. They're selling out in Indiana. And they've got just a horse on their on their bottle and a farm. And it looks authentic. There goes that animal. You know, yeah, it's easy sell. <laughs> you know, people feel it, right? And so not everybody has that ad background. And that guy put no effort into thinking about what it should be named. It was like, it came to him in five minutes, no meetings. I'm sure you can make up a horse name or yeah. a barn name. It's, it's just, yeah. Boom. It's, yeah, it's there. Going back to like my original comment of like, it's what consumers want. Like you can't push something on consumers. How is it that a bourbon consumer wants the bottle that looks like a horse, you know, has like some kind of horse connection to it and says Kentucky all over it. And then like, you know, like the the newer labels, they may not be as excited about. Like, take me in the in the head of a consumer from your perspective. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the way that we approach it is kind of like twofold. You know, we when you look at the continued explosion and growth over the industry for what is it, 14, 15 years now of consecutive year over year significant growth. When you see that kind of growth, it points back to one thing and one thing only, and that's a customer. And to suggest that the industry has been able to see that continued and significant growth over 14, 15 years, and to assume that it's the same customer that it's always been is just flat out wrong. It's impossible. So what that shows to any kind of business executive evaluating any business is that that customer is growing, that customer is evolving. So for us, we saw that, you know, we were doing our due diligence, getting in the industry. It wasn't just kind of looking at what we wanted to do, but get a true idea and understanding of the current business and landscape. And that's one of the first things that we saw. We didn't know that there had been 14, 15 years of that kind of growth, but that was the first thing that immediately said to me, wow, this customer base is growing and expanding. And with that, it causes you to look at who that consumer is. Because at the end of the day, you as a brand are responsible for how do you engage that customer. But the one thing that did stick, stick out to us is that there's never been more diversity in a bourbon drinker customer now than there ever, there's ever been. Diversity in age, younger than ever. Diversity in sex, more women drinking it than ever. Diversity in ethnicity, it's no longer just this you know older white gentleman's drink. People of color, Asian American, African American, Indian American are flocking to the spirit. So when you identify that, it begs the question, what brands are speaking to this new customer? And there's not any. I was really. about to say, yeah. do, you, do you have to think you have to build a brand that speaks directly to it? Or is it possible to adapt a brand? I mean, I, I see a lot of brands out there that are, and maybe it's they're just like, oh, we'll just throw money at it and we'll sponsor all this stuff. But are, is there a way that a brand can adapt to it? Or do you think a brand has to be built? To no, be able to speak I, th to I think you absolutely can evolve as a brand. I just don't think many have. I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, Weller, you know, was this kind of just an everyday bourbon type item. And then it's now it's kind of become this luxury good and it's repackaged. And, you know, it's kind of taken on this identity as like more of a premium shelf trophy bourbon versus just this like everyday shelf item that I used to get at Rite Aid for $19.99, you know. And two, there's, we're kind of in a box here in Kentucky that, you know, we built the box of what, you know, Jonathan's talking about of the, what bourbon is. And we live in this box and where I think there's probably, you know, this demographic of folks who like whiskey, but they don't really give a shit about the heritage. You know, they they want something that, you know, that's new and exciting and relates to them, you know, to, to their style and their you know, they're not Kentuckians, they're not Southerners, you know, they're West Coasters or they're Northeasterns, you know, they have a different culture and different lifestyle than I guess, you know, we do here in the, you know, the the South and Southeast. And so, yeah, it's, I think, you know, it'd be interesting from a historical perspective, Fred, like, you know, I think about like, you know, when you go to Old Forester and they talk about 
is it Garvin Brown, the original uh, that you know the, George, the, the, yep, you got George it. or whatever. Then they were like, they're like, well, you're he very, was just buying. I'm glad, I'm glad we've been doing this for almost eight years now. You finally got the founder's name of Brown Foreman. Right? Well, so. <laughs> that's why I said that's why I said Fred. I'm going to ask you from a historical perspective. But like, you hear the story about him, and he was like basically buying whiskey from other people, and you know. Blending it or putting in barrel bottles, you know, he was one of the first quote first bottlers of whiskey, but he wasn't making his own. And then you read about, you know, the Shapira family, Heaven Hill wasn't producing whiskey from the start. You know, they were sourcing, and it's like so. From a historical perspective, how did those, you know, at the time they weren't traditional bourbon brands, but how did they carve their path, you know, against what the current market was? So the business has always had had the you know, within the trade. You, you have the people who, what they would say, buy on wholesale receipts. So those would be the NDPs buying whiskey. And then you had people, the distillers, who could always count on them to do that. So that's the inner workings of like the distilleries. Like the distilleries depended on those NDPs, which Chuck Cowdery coined that phrase, you know, 15, 20 years ago. They didn't call them NDPs back in the day. But the industries always relied on them. And then the marketers would battle it out over saying, well, we actually make our whiskey, you know? So the, this is, it's a part of the tradition of like, you know, the distillers always getting along and helping one another. It's a big part of, of, of the history. The difference today is that the demand is, you know, for the whiskey that everybody wants is, is higher, I would say, than it was back then because there was, you know, today there's a higher age quota for it. Like today, like eight year bourbon is like a kind of a starter for a lot of people. But that being said, it's those people were able to build their brands because they had relationships with distilleries that allowed them to get good whiskey and they wouldn't get cut out of them. That's why that's why Luxco, when when Heaven Hill cut Luxco off, you know, they essentially had a a route to merge with MGP because they knew they would they they had lost that relationship. You know, Max Shapira cut them off, and it it always does come down to the whiskey and the distillers see that they are you know they look at it very differently than they did in 1935. They don't they a lot of them look at it as like why am I going to give a competitor on the shelf you know the choice whiskey so the the line between the there used to be like a separation of church and state in the distillery and everything that worked on on the warehouses to the sales department that line is gone and in fact the sales department and marketing department have a lot more say than the distillers do and so now and it's so important to build a brand you know if you build a brand first then you then you have more power you know, to getting whiskey. I'm, I'm going all over the damn place. <laughs> I, I see where you're going though with it. All over the damn place. I, I do see you're going there with it though, because it is, it is something about if, if you are going to be building that brand, you have to own it. You have to own the story that's going to be behind it, whether, and it just depends on, on how authentic you can build it. And I think that's been one of the things that, that we've seen that Fred, you had noted at the very beginning is that we started right now, we're starting to see this rise of, of shadow brands or this rise of these really unknown type of distilleries or basically should i say ndps with more money that they know of and they just threw at it they bought barrels and they're just creating labels left and right to go and take up shelf space and i think that's probably the thing that we're going to start seeing here relatively soon is that once all these investor barrels start coming online you're going to start seeing a lot more labels i mean i don't want to i'm not going to throw anything at the bus right now but we get bottles sent to us all the time and you go what what does this have anything to do with it's oh it's some made up story oh it's some Kentucky second place Kentucky Derby right winner right it was never the first place because that one's that name's already trademarked but we could take the second or third because that's an easy one to go and take so I think you're going to see a lot of those come out and that's a very inauthentic way to build a brand but it's an easy way that anybody looks at it because yes it's got a horse on it it's got a barn on it but it doesn't have a a necessarily a a good story but it's just something that's easy to attach to. And that goes back to Fred, as you were saying earlier, you've got that one place that's just bottling. It's got a picture of a horse on it, a picture of a bar on it. And visually, as a customer, that is something that's easy to gravitate towards. You know what that is because you just automatically assume bourbon, 
horses. They go together. It's got to be good. And so it's at a very, I, I feel like you're almost at a disadvantage if you just try to go and build something from the ground up that doesn't necessarily have those. Can you change the the mindset of a whiskey drinker? You know, they've been so like dialed in the way it should be, has always been. Can you, it's like, can we change that mindset? Well, I think it's, you know, as I mentioned, you know, how do you tell a story that creates a conversation and creates a dialogue, right? And if you're able to do that successfully, then you should have the opportunity to tap into culture. If you have the opportunity to tap into culture, then you have the opportunity to create something special. So I don't know the, the size and scale of the brand that you're referring to, Fred, but I would imagine in order for them to kind of scale and grow significantly, you know, there is going to have to be some aspect of what makes them unique and different from, you know, all the other brands that look and operate similar to how they do. And I think a question that every brand has to be able to answer authoritatively, explicitly, without any reservation, regardless of industry or discipline is, why do you deserve to exist? And if you can't answer that question, you probably don't. And I think if we take a step back and we look at some of these newer emerging brands, including Frank, and really hold their feet to the fire and have them answer the question, well, why do you deserve to exist? What are you doing that nobody else is doing? What are you satisfying that nobody else is? I think it's a lot more challenging, you know, for brands to be able to answer that in, you know, a, like I said, in a, a meaningful, authoritative way. And chances are, if you can't answer that, you, you probably won't be around in the next three to four years or maybe even sooner. So that's something that, you know, we continue to ask ourselves. We've asked ourselves from day one that question, why do we deserve to exist? And for us, you know, it's we want to evolve and to elevate the conversation of bourbon. And that's in part through this kind of reconsideration of what bourbon means and what its identity as America's spirit is. That's a conversation, at least in our opinion, that's interesting. That's a real conversation to have. And in doing so, you know, introduce our, our bourbon, our whiskey. And, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that we feel that the product that we're putting out delivers on that. And I think that's what's been one of the most rewarding aspects, no matter what people think of the bottle and the awards that we've won, just at the end of the day that people love the bourbon that we put out. So that's what we're focused on at the same time of like, you know, figuring out how do we continue to develop and grow this brand? Because let's be honest, we've been in existence for seven months right? Selling out of a few thousand cases, you know, up front. Yeah, it's great. But we are, we absolutely understand that we're just getting in, you know, we're just getting into the industry. We by no means have found any kind of meaningful success. We need to work our asses off and continue to put out an amazing product that delivers of what's inside that bottle. So that continues to be our focus. But we also understand that you know, the brand story provides us that platform and that opportunity to kind of further expand it and hopefully get the name of Frank August to more and more customers. And hopefully that compels them the next time they're in a, their favorite retailer at their bar and they see that bottle that they give consideration to that. So there's no silver bullet and, you know, kind of long way going back to your question, Fred, I think that, you know, we, I also want to be clear just because I've said there's a new customer that's you know more diverse than it's ever been it doesn't mean that existing brands can't speak to that new customer i'm not making that claim i'm just saying that if that is what you're looking for there are dozens if not hundreds of brands that already kind of you know speak to you speak to those customers in that way and so i guess another way to look at this as well is so we can see how you can go from a, a brand and a messaging story but I guess, how do you take this to the point where it's it's to the point, I don't know, I think the, Ryan, I'll, I'll kind of push it to you. When you look at something like the marketing aspect of it, do you have to change your entire position of marketing to go and say, okay, now we have to start believing in these sort of values, or maybe it's not about the whiskey. We've got to tell the story because that's what's going to sell the brand at the end of the day. Hell, I don't know, because we're still figuring this out ourselves. Yeah, it's it definitely, it's like, okay, how do you, somebody goes into a store, looks at your bottle and says, I know what that is and I know what I'm getting out of it, you know, and how do you build that, where that customer understands that going into it and sees it and they're like, no, it's like, you know, Fred was talking about barrel. Like when I look at barrel's bottle out and I go, I see in the store, I know what they're selling. It's 
barrel-proof whiskey blended together and really good, you know? And it's going to be different and unique. Like, I know that story. Like, when I look at, you know, Penelope or something, I'm like, well, they're kind of young, playful, you know, they're sourcing, but trying to put their own spin on it, you know, this and that. You know, that's what I get. When I look at, like, you know, Old Elk, I'm like, oh, they used a classic master distiller trained, you know, to really produce really good whiskey and the packaging looks good, you know? It's like, how do you build that story that when people see it, they can connect to it and be like, okay, I'm going to take a chance on this. So I think you have to like hone in that story. And it's like, I think you have to be a little edgy because the market is so crowded that, you know, you have to be a little vibrant, a little edgy, pushy that like, that's going to throw people off. So they like pay attention to you because it is so like noisy, I guess, <laughs> you know, you go to the shelf and I'm like, what the hell is all this shit? You know? <laughs> That's true. There's it's it's got to be whether it's the bottle shape, like something has to pull them in. Like I think that's the thing that you have to something that has to pull you in, and then you're able to start building around a branding and a messaging story into it. But I think that's that's kind of the first thing. It's I think it's the the tale as old as time is that you can't judge a book by its cover. But I tell you what, I I certainly look at when I'm scrolling through Netflix, I'm looking at that movie title cover, and that's probably what's going to judge what I'm going to look at something or what I'm going to look at it as. Yeah, too. And you're and you're scared to like make the wrong choice. Even like I get like decision fatigue choosing a Netflix show because there's so much. And I'm like, I spend more time deciding than I do actually watching because I don't want to make the wrong choice. And it's like you do the same thing and you do the same thing, you know, at the liquor store. It's like, gosh, I just don't want to be wrong. You know, I'm willing to take a chance on someone and something new, but I don't want to be wrong. And it's like, how can you know, break down those barriers to where, uh, you know, it's it's like. You know, I think it's, you know, this industry is just very old school. You got to, you know, do samplings and trying and getting in relation, building relationships. It's just, you know, a, a very old school uh, kind of way of selling things, but it works. Do you guys feel that there are any of those legacy heritage brands that have done some kind of pivot in the way that they market and tell the story of the oh, brands? Yeah, totally. There's been many, 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 many uh, successful example. The the best example would be Heaven Hill with Old Fitzgerald. You know, is it they, I mean, is all they're doing is just repackaging their old. No, 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 no. This is before that. I mean, we're talking 2010. They completely got rid of it and came out with Larceny. You know, so they completely changed it, and that was all driven by the women in the company. You know, wanting to get away from like old, tired marketing. That was a big point of my book, Whiskey Women. And like how, you know, they re-envisioned it to be more appealing to the masses. That was a very specific, you know, strategy they did. They got rid of Old Fitz Prime. They got rid of, essentially got rid of, you know, nationally all the Old Fitzgerald products. And then, you know, created Larceny, used the same story, changed the packaging and made it national. And then they came out with a higher, more highfalutin, you know, decanter for Old Fitz. Good call. That's a, that's actually a really good example. And then, of course, you know, Ryan mentioned Weller, you know, doing, you know, doing something similar. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to I'm not a big fan of this brand, but Beam has done a brilliant job with Basil Hayden, you know, reaching the the masses. Basil Hayden does great in in different markets outside of the core bourbon world. You know, so if you go to a kind of a, a millennial party that vodka is going to be served and there's not any bourbon type stuff there. Basil Hayden will be will be there over over other products. And I and another one, I think Jack Daniels is continuously reinventing themselves. Their partnership with the NBA, you know, you know, that gave them another Zed. They have one with Zed. Yeah. yeah I mean they Jack Daniels just they always know the right moves to make. I I, swear. I, you got you can't forget old Forrester too. I mean that was like a you know the most popular value bourbon here in Louisville. And now you got, you know, all these great prohibition kind of expressions and you got the 117, you know, series and all this, you know, and barrel proof single barrels, they really like helped, you know, kind of change the adapted that brand to appeal to, you know, a, a better, more educated audience than rather just go get my handle OFO, you know, and mix it with Coke every day. I think a I think a, a more educated audience can still can still go get their handles of old foe though. Well, yes, that's what <laughs> old foe used to be. <laughs> and then and you. then uh you know Jonathan I I looked to Four Roses and like how they 
they will just hammer down any market they can to talk about their product. And they're not, it's not by design. It's out of, you know, passion. And they're not, they're not doing it because like, Hey, we have to hit the female demographic or we have to hit, you know, the Hispanic demographic. They, they don't do that. They just go in, they just go and talk with anyone who want, they want to talk to them. So I think everyone has their own strategy and, you know, four roses is a kind of a shotgun approach, heaven Hills, quite a bit more, you know, they're more lasered in and focused when they want to do something like that. Same with Beam. But I, I think there's been a lot of reimagining with the exception of maybe Wild Turkey, which seems to be changing its packaging every every six six months. They're going to so. take the packaging as their messaging, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe it'll speak to somebody different this time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But I think that's a good way to kind of end this because we, we've touched on a lot of different aspects of just branding, how to tell a story and how to get away from, I want to say the old guard, but that's typically a good way to look at it is just because a lot of these stories have been ingrained into bourbon and whiskey culture for so long, but they are easy to grasp onto and they're easy to learn because they do resonate very well. I think we're going to see a lot of this come over in the next few years as you see Brands like Jonathan's with Frank August, not even include ourselves in that, because we're trying ourselves with pursuit and trying to figure out how do we tell more of a united story and with that too. And I think we fall into that same bucket, but I just want consumers also to be aware of when you're walking down the, the aisles at your local liquor store and you start seeing all these brands that you've never heard of, try and do your best, do a little bit of research and try to figure out what can you find out about them? Because I think that's going to go a long way because it's it anybody can put a picture of a horse and take some sort of horse name and throw it to it or a barn. And, and maybe all of a sudden it's, you know, crazy and it's, it's crazy looking and whatnot and people want it. But I think you just need to understand who's behind it, who's building it. And as Jonathan and as Fred said at the very beginning, is the whiskey any good? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And I I do think, I think we're still in this beautiful Renaissance period where there's going to be these new and exciting brands that can, you know, capture a different demographic. And I, I look at the wine world and how traditional it was. And now you have great brands like Prisoner and, you know, however you think about Mayomi, but Mayomi's, you know, got a huge following, you know, it wasn't a traditional winery that made their own grapes they were sourcing from different farms and this and that and creating interesting unique blends and so i think that's what you're going to see in the the bourbon world if it's going to continue to grow because i mean it's i mean if you're only going to buy from six companies it gets it gets old real fast <laughs> very true very true well jonathan just as we close out here give everybody an opportunity of of where they can find out more about you and how you can learn more about the brand as well most information you can find on our website, thefrankaugust.com. We have a stockist page for the markets that we have distribution in. So we're in 10 markets right now, and we're going to be expanding into one state this year, Tennessee. We're currently in California, Nevada, Arizona, Washington, Florida, Kentucky, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and D.C. And then Tennessee will be our 11th market. But you should find most information on our website. There you go. Congratulations on the early success. So make sure you pay attention. Go follow the Frank August on all the socials as well. Make sure you follow us as well, Bourbon Pursuit. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. Oh, yeah. Sucks. And follow Fred. <laughs>